I'm Monsignor Bill Parent, pastor of St. Elizabeth Church, and you're listening to the St. Elizabeth Church Podcast. This episode is one of five talks by our parish clergy from our 2021 Lenten series, Three Simple Things, Truth, Accountability, and Transparency in Our Church and Nation. Here is my final talk in this series, recorded live on Tuesday, March 23rd. Please rise for our gospel. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. As soon as morning came, the chief priests with the elders and the scribes, that is, the whole Sanhedrin, held a council. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? He said to him in reply, You say so. The chief priests accused him of many things. Again, Pilate questioned him, Have you no answer? See how many things they accuse you of. Jesus gave him no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, on the occasion of the feast, he used to release to them one prisoner whom they requested. A man called Barabbas was then in prison along with the rebels who had committed murder in a rebellion. The crowd came forward and began to ask him to do for them as he was accustomed. Pilate answered, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. Pilate again said to them in reply, Then what do you want me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted again, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? They only shouted the louder, Crucifying him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and after he had Jesus scourged, handed him over to be crucified. The Gospel of the Lord. Three Simple Things, 2021. Truth, Accountability, and Transparency in Our Church and nation, part five of five parts, in which I will try to answer this question. Where do we go from here? Answering this question begins with understanding as accurately as possible where here is. For the past four Tuesdays, Our talks have primarily tried to answer the here question from different perspectives. Allow me to thank publicly both Father Stefan and Deacon Mark for their 
eloquent and deeply insightful articulations of here, as well as where we might go as Christians. I don't want to just say this in any superficial pro forma manner. Their talks were truly remarkable. It's, it's not easy to wrestle with the great questions of any age and to do so in a kind of original and deeply faithful fashion as they both did. It, it's quite a blessing. Tonight, I'll refer to a few of their insights over the course of my talk. Let's pick up where we left off in our first holy hour, that first talk I delivered. Let's pick up specifically with what I introduced as our Pontius Pilate problem. We heard a bit of that problem from John's Gospel's perspective that first night. Tonight, we heard a little larger slice of Mark's perspective. It's the same perspective we're going to hear on Passion Sunday this Sunday. And this problem, I would argue, this Pontius Pilate problem is arguably the most relevant biblical point of reference for what's wrong today with our church and nation. In other words, the Pontius Pilate problem is the best place in the Bible for us to understand where here is for us today. Recall that Pilate's primary problem was subordinating the truth to its utility in service of power. As Pilate is portrayed in the Gospels, historians argue whether this was truly the historical Pilate, but we'll never know the answer to that. But as he is portrayed in the Gospels, he knows that Jesus does not deserve to be crucified. Yet, he is also afraid of the political consequences of losing control of this potentially violent mob in front of him, the mob that wants Jesus crucified. And Pilate, as we saw in my first talk, Pilate lacks the courage necessary to stand up for truth against that mob. And so in Matthew's famous version of this event, Pilate washes his hands of the truth about Jesus and gives the mob what they want. One brief footnote about that famous hand washing. Historically, it had been interpreted as placing the guilt for the death of Jesus on the Jewish people. The Second Vatican Council clearly renounced this interpretation. We neither assign guilt for the death of Jesus to all the Jews of his time or to any Jews of later times. This language in Matthew's Gospel reflects the tension between Matthew's 
fledgling church and the Pharisaic and Pharisaic Judaism when the gospel took written form. What we believe today is that as sinners, we are all responsible for the death of Jesus. His blood is on our hands. Back to the Pontius Pilate problem. I suspect that most of us read the biblical passages about Pilate from a a personally safe perspective, a personally safe distance. From our safe perspective, he is so ancient and, and so alien culturally that we simply don't identify with him in the least. The challenges Pilate faced just don't seem to have anything to do with us. Perhaps we find something in his story that fits our elite, as I proposed in my first talk, but it's hard to find anything universal in Pilate's story. Allow me tonight to propose an alternative theory. Most of us have a bit of Pilate in us in ways that are perhaps not immediately obvious. And here are three ways I would propose that most of us have a personal Pontius Pilate problem. First, in a democracy such as ours, some small portion of the power of the state invested in Pilate as Roman governor is invested in us as participants in our democracy. No, we, we don't single-handedly judge whether an individual be, will be executed by the state, but we might participate in a judicial process that executes someone. No, we don't enforce the laws of a foreign occupying empire, but we do have some role in the laws that govern us. In these and many subtle ways that we usually take for granted, our relation to the power of the state has more in common with Pilate than with the ancient Jews he governed. In the United States today, in this democracy, not only do most of us share in the power of the state, but most of us are also in some way vying to increase our share of power. Whenever we vote or campaign or merely advocate politics that favor our side, we are vying to increase our share of political power. Some of us even do so professionally as government bureaucrats. I'm the son of two government bureaucrats. I love them very much. I love all you bureaucrats very much. But some of us are also political consultants. 
Like an ancient Roman governor in our modern democracy, we have political power. And at the very least, we try to maintain that power. A second way that we have a personal Pontius Pilate problem is in the encounter with the mob that threatens power. What mob, you ask? The ubiquitous mobs that populate social media. Angry voices whose calls for cancellation echo the ancient biblical mob calling for the crucifixion of Jesus. Today, those mobs sometimes enter real time and space when protests turn violent and mobs storm our capital or city halls. What unites these politically disparate mobs is self-righteous fury. At some scapegoat, they are absolutely certain is to blame for this outrageous injustice. No context, no nuance, no humility, and above all, no mercy is allowed. Punish him, punish her, punish them. They are evil and must be punished for what they have done. And if you don't agree with us, we'll punish you too. Notice that the biblical mob, like Pilate, has abandoned the truth. Recall that the ancient Jews hated Roman domination, and they prayed for and even expected a great military or political messiah who would free them from the Roman Empire. But since this mob wanted Jesus executed as a heretic for claiming to be the Son of God, they were willing to present him as an enemy to Caesar. (laughs) There's great irony in that. And they pledged, in the process, they pledged their loyalty to Caesar. As the chief priests say in John's Gospel, we have no king but Caesar. I've already covered the third way that we have a Pontius Pilate problem, specifically subordinating truth to our quest for power, whatever form that takes personally. I bring it up here again because once we recognize what we have in common with Pilate regarding power and mobs, we more easily recognize how tempting it must have been for him to abandon the truth about Jesus in order to satisfy the mob. How often today do we witness in our media modern pilots washing their hands of the truth they spoke five minutes ago, and they do so as they 
try to give a mob that's come after them what they want. I don't, I don't observe this about modern pilots unsympathetically. It's hard to face an angry mob that wants to destroy your reputation, your livelihood, your place in society. Now let's be honest, in our quiet moments, how often do we hope that an angry mob won't come after us? Like most priests, I have a nagging feeling that in the not-so-distant future, an angry mob will come after us, or after me as a priest. I said in my first talk that Pilate is an eerily modern figure in his willingness to abandon truth when it served his power to do so. He is also an eerily modern figure in the way he faces an angry mob and tries to accommodate that mob. So if we step back from the particulars of Pilate's role and how we might share elements of that role in our own lives, let's, let's look at the story in, as a whole. And, and there are basically three available roles in the Pontius Pilate problem. Pilate, the mob, and Jesus. I don't believe this trinity of roles is merely an historical accident. I would suggest there's a kind of universal pattern here that frequently surfaces, especially in modern life. In my first talk in this series, I suggested that this pattern explains why so many of our elites in our church and nation seem to have abandoned truth and its corollaries, accountability and transparency. Tonight, so far, I have described how the rest of us can be pushed into the role of Pilate by denying some truth in an attempt to satisfy an angry mob. But there are those other two possibilities. We can join the mob, or we can stand with Jesus. Of course, we know as Christians we are called to stand with Jesus. But what does that really mean? Since we are not the Son of God, but are rather sinners, often unsure of the truth in a complex world. Allow me to wind down this last talk by proposing a few practical steps. If here is some variation of the Pontius Pilate problem, then where do we go from here? Well, as a general principle, before we get to the to practical details, I would suggest we renew our commitment to the truth through our relationship with Jesus Christ, who is God's truth incarnate. And here I would cite a few of the insights that Father Stefan and Deacon Mark proposed in their talks. 
I'm just going to paraphrase, so forgive me if, if what I say isn't as eloquent as what they said. Both of them, in different ways, suggested that for Christians, truth requires an inward turn in, in the context of what we might call the light of Christ. It's not a merely personal inward turn. It's always in the context of a community and the light of Christ. But it is an inward turn. Deacon Mark expressed this in Trinitarian terms, in terms of our communion with the mutual shared love of the Father and the Son that is shared with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father Stephan reminded us that even Jesus, in our puny and, and, and warped by sin uh, human minds, can become a false self-serving idol. In scriptural terms, Father Stefan offered a challenge. If we have not struggled mightily to remove the plank from our own eye, we have no business trying to remove the speck from our brother's or sister's eye. Here, I might paraphrase early 18th century French diplomat and philosopher Joseph de Maistre, who said, in a democracy, the people get the leaders they deserve. In other words, if there's a crisis of leadership in our nation, it reflects a crisis of character in us. And so the first step in reforming our church and nation is indeed reforming ourselves. I know, I know, I can hear the objections, but the church is not a democracy. We say that as Catholics all the time. True, but today the church is also not a tyranny. The Spanish Inquisition ended centuries ago. Today, we have a voice in the church, and we exercised it together as a parish family in our three simple things letters of 2018. Imagine if instead of receiving hundreds of letters, our bishops received millions of letters from Catholics everywhere, all over the world, millions, tens of millions of letters calling for truth, accountability, and transparency. In 2021, collectively as a church, we have no one to blame but ourselves if we fail to try to speak the truth to our church elites. And as Father Stefan reminded us in his first talk, our relationship with our bishops is a covenant relationship. It's like a marriage. And when your spouse is in trouble spiritually, you try to speak the truth to your spouse as lovingly as possible. Allow me to announce that after a great discussion with our parish pastoral council last week, we agreed 
that we should follow up as a parish on our 2018 letters by thanking our bishops for what was good in the McCarrick Report and respectfully identifying what still needs to be done. Stay tuned for details on this front. A lot of work needs to be done still. And to those world-weary souls who criticize such letters as politically futile, we would remind you that the ministry of Jesus and his call to us is simply to speak and live the truth, not necessarily to succeed on the world's terms. The blood of martyrs witnesses to truth, not to worldly success. But this is all still rather general and not very practical. Okay, maybe we'll sign a letter, but beyond that, what does this inward turn towards truth in our relationship with Jesus Christ look like? On a personal letter, on a personal level, where do we go from here? Let me suggest that the foundation for all of us is specifically by having a personal plan, a real personal plan, a concrete personal plan for seeking the truth actively and humbly. This will not happen if our primary source of information about the world is our Facebook or Twitter feed, or for that matter, if it's Fox News or even the New York Times. Seeking the truth actively and humbly means studying the Bible and the teachings of our faith and discovering those planks in our eyes and accepting God's mercy and healing so that we can see the world more clearly. Seeking the truth actively and humbly also means living the truth in lives of service, especially service to those who are weak or sick or poor or oppressed in any way. Seeking the truth actively and humbly means emerging from our echo chambers and listening, really listening with open minds and hearts to the beliefs of our political enemies, both in our church and in our nation. Rather than trying to always vilify them by name-calling and trying to force them into weak and distorted versions of their arguments, humility means finding the grains of truth in their views that may not be very well expressed, and then generously try to help them express those views better. Seeking the truth actively and humbly literally means loving our enemies and recognizing 
their spiritual and emotional wounds that might be healed by Jesus Christ. Seeking the truth actively and humbly as Christians means bringing God's mercy into our most heated cultural debates. And mercy, by definition, means giving up some measure of worldly power. Recall that Pilate and the mob both abandoned truth to try to maximize worldly power. Conversely, Jesus lived the truth by suffering and dying. God's plan for healing the world is mercy, not power. At some level, mercy means recognizing the dignity of our enemies and compromising with them, which inevitably means relinquishing some of our worldly power. Allow me to try to clarify and expand upon this last point through Deacon Mark's beautiful formulation. Words like truth, accountability, and transparency have become almost cliches in the modern world. Buzzwords we use to express our unhappiness with someone else, usually someone elite. Cliches can certainly be true, but Deacon Mark reminded us how Jesus Christ himself uniquely embodies and gives Christian meaning to these words. Jesus Christ is truth. God's truth made flesh for us. We discover truth only in relation to him. Christ's suffering and death are accountability for our sins. Accountability in any walk of life means accepting the consequences of the truth. And Christian accountability implies we must be prepared to suffer for truth. And Jesus Christ is transparency, the perfect revelation of God the Father. We are not waiting for a further revelation. We are not waiting for a new Messiah. So let me conclude this series simply by saying thank you for your presence and patient attention tonight and throughout these talks. Thanks to an even greater number of you who will listen to the recordings of these talks. As we finish our Lenten series in prayer tonight, let us pray together for the wisdom and the courage to live and to suffer and to hope for truth, accountability, and transparency in Jesus Christ.